God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise is due to thee, O God, in Zion. To you all flesh shall come on account of sins. When our transgressions prevail over us, you do forgive them. Blessed is he whom you did choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Let us pray. O God, you are infinite, eternal, unchangeable, glorious. You are holy, you are just, you are right in all your judgments. You are full of love and mercy and compassion, abundant in grace and truth. We are just touching on those um, truths about your character. Your works everywhere praise you. Your glory is revealed in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we rejoice that we can come and join in that praise this morning. Come and be present in our midst by your Holy Spirit that we might praise you, blessed and holy Trinity, one God forever and ever. Amen. And our first hymn is number nine, All You That Fear Jehovah's Name.
Acknowledge your sin to God and do not hide your iniquity. Confess your transgressions to the Lord, for he forgives the guilt of our sin. Let us pray together the prayer printed in the bulletin. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people, we acknowledge and confess our grievous wickedness, which we have so often committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your anger and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are deeply sorry for these our wrongdoings. The memory of them weighs us down. The burden of them is too great for us to bear. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that from this time onwards we may serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves that God, God's love toward us, that his love comes to us before we did anything to deserve that love. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ that you are forgiven of all your sin as you have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of your sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and we say together, praise be to God. We have many games today. In fact, uh, some of the most important things in life are often turned into a game. It seems like we're just a game kind of culture. Games we can play and games we can watch. There are, of course, the sports games, basketball, hockey, all of that, card games, board games, video games, but also social games. With TV and video, almost everything is made into a game. War games, business games, history games, crime games, even social planning games. Dating becomes a game for some people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, being a Christian is not a game. We need to discern that. We need to recognize that that's not something we should turn into a game. Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In the book of Revelation, we hear of the blood of the people of God being spilled on the ground, and they are called the martyrs, Jesus' disciples, who were called to give their very lives for him. That's not a game. In the epistle to the Hebrews, we hear that the Christians were exposed to abuse and affliction and imprisoned. Christians give up their wealth and public honor and family and dreams and goals and even their, their time for Jesus Christ. It's not a game to live as a Christian doing only what feels good and making no sacrifice. To live as a Christian is a very wholehearted, a full life in endeavor, and it's a work uh, of a way of living that is completely dependent upon God's grace. It's not a game to live as a Christian doing only what we want to do. In Christ, we offer ourselves to God, and that's why we come to worship rather than sleep in or go to the mall or do all the other things we could do out in the world. In Christ, we, give, or we offer ourselves to God, and that's why we stop committing immorality and indulging ourselves. We give ourselves to God because he first came to us in Jesus Christ. We have been joined with Christ, who is the offering of God's sacrifice on the cross, and so now we live our lives as an offering to God, as Paul says in Romans 12. This is God's will for you in Jesus Christ, and let us say, 
Amen. Our hymn is number 485, O Thou That Hears Twin Sinners Cry.
Please join me in prayer for those in need. Great and mighty God, our Heavenly Father, as day follows night, you are faithful toward us. And now your faithfulness is fulfilled and has been revealed fully in Jesus Christ. Grace that gives so much to us and peace that sets our hearts at ease. We thank you for your blessings to each one of us here. In Christ you have given us the hope of glory, the truth of all things, the salvation from our sin. We are your holy possession, as scripture calls us. Hear our thanksgiving and petitions this day for all Christians and for this world. O Lord, you help us in our weakness. We pray for all those in need. The homeless, the hungry, the poor, those who are attacked, children without parents, children who are unborn, widows. For such as these, we pray, and we ask that you would protect them, give them care, that they would not be pushed aside in our society. Give us the grace to come to their aid and to the defense of the weak. Hear our prayers. For the leaders of this land, we pray. For Joe Biden, our president. For Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow, our senators. Gretchen Whitmer, our governor. We pray for the officials who do govern us, that they would be honest and conscientious, humble, just, and fair. As you are just, may evil be punished and good honored. We pray that you would restrain people's selfish motives and lust for power. And give peace and justice to our cities. We also pray for good governments in Mali, Afghanistan, Ukraine, China, the United States, North Korea, Iran, Mexico, and Syria, and we pray you would stop acts of terror in many of these nations. Hear our prayers. Blessed Savior, for your holy people gathered around the world, we petition you. Guard and keep those who are isolated from the rest of your church so that they may continue in the Christian faith, in Christian worship, and Christian love. Keep them in fellowship with us by the bond of your spirit and make us mindful of that fellowship. Give grace and peace in Christ so that they hold fast to the word of our salvation and their ministers would faithfully proclaim it. Here are prayers for the Christian churches in Iraq and Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, Turkey, and other places where the church is um, put to the test. Here are prayers. Oh God, bless the church's missionary work throughout this world so, so that it is intent upon the kingdom of God and is faithful to your word. We pray that we would send out sufficiently trained men to rightly teach the gospel of Christ, and we pray that those who are serving you would mature in the knowledge of Christ. We pray for churches and their members to mature in humility and charity and faith. Here are prayers for our missionaries in Uganda, for James Fulkert, Mark Van Essendelf, Charles Jackson, and their families. Here are prayers also for the Presbytery meeting this Friday and Saturday. Hear our prayers for the church. O Father, for our needs, we do also pray for your beloved people in this congregation and our friends 
for those we know who struggle with weakness and temptation, with sickness and grief and discouragement. Heal the sick and help the needy. We pray for Don and Frida, for Eduardo and Fawn and Jeff, for Luca and Tammy's family, and our friends Becky and Bob and Caroline, Tom, Dominique, Vicki, Angie, Karen, Jane, and others we name to you in silence. We thank you for hearing our prayers and giving health and work, comfort, strength of faith, perseverance, protection, and just simply upholding us when we are unable to even get out of bed. Receive our thanks, O God. Bless this church and give us growth by your word so that we may persevere in the new life of Christ and be his witnesses in this place where we live. Unto you, Almighty God, by your Spirit, who helps us as we commit our prayers to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. And now as we prepare to hear God's word read and preached, we will pray our prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that by your spirit you would open our 
our, our ears and our, our minds and our hearts to receive your word. Um, it is uh, life to us, and we pray that in your power it would bear the fruit to which you uh, purpose it and that the result would be um, that we glorify you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our reading begins in Daniel. Chapter 9, first 19 verses. Hear now God's word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a maid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand 
and have made a name for yourself as at this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for our iniquities of our for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Our Psalter reading is in the bulletin. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who satisfies you with good. The Lord works righteousness. He made known his ways to Moses. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He will not always chide. He deals he does not deal with us according to our sins. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. As a father shows compassion to his children, for he knows our frame. We turn next to our epistle reading in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that, he, that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up 
in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And finally, our gospel reading in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The word of the Lord. In times of crisis, what do we do? We cast blame. Pointing the finger is an ancient art. Just think of Adam pointing his finger at Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said to the Lord, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Just think of Cain, who when the, Lord, when the Lord asked where his brother Abel was after Cain had killed him, said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, why are you asking me, my brother's responsible for himself? Or when Pontius Pilate in Matthew's gospel ordered Jesus to be crucified, he took, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourself. And that was before he turned Jesus over to the guards to be crucified. Casting blame, however, is not limited to times past. Our society has become adept at blaming others. It's become a reflex. There was even a landmark study published in 2001 that determined that we blame others because our brain responds more strongly to bad experiences than good ones. And our memories retain them longer, and so it's just easier for us to blame other people. Maybe because we think of ourselves before we think of others. When there's trouble in a marriage, husbands blame the wife, and the wives blame the husbands. Children grow up and blame their parents, 
for their personal problems. When people get cancer, they look for a scapegoat, which is usually a company that manufactured a product or a property owner who was negligent. I took a tour some years ago with my family in Edinburgh, Scotland, and we were grouped together in a courtyard between old buildings. The courtyard itself was paved with large stone blocks, some of which had pushed up, they'd been pushed up near a tree in the middle of the courtyard. And a pile of these stones was beside the tree, and there was that yellow caution tape stretched around the perimeter of the stones. The tour guide pointed to the pile and told us that a woman from the United States on a previous tour had walked too close to the stones and tripped, injuring her leg. A few weeks later, she filed a lawsuit against the owner of the property for her distress and won. The guide said that lawsuits like this were highly unusual in Europe. He said in Europe, people put their head down and say, sorry, 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 when there's a mishap. Americans, on the other hand, he said, will turn around and sue you. Our society as a whole has been configured to blame others. The drug abuse problem in our nation is the pharmaceutical industry's problem. Law firms advertise class action suits to lure people into potential million-dollar, multi-million-dollar court settlements. Camp Lejeune, you've probably heard about that. Roundup pesticide, asbestos, these are just some examples. One ethnic group blames another for social problems. These days, there is general blame of those with European ancestry for many social problems like racism, obesity, and air pollution. And I found some uh, stories on the web that justify each one of those. Without a doubt, there are crises caused by people, groups of people, businesses, and governments. And most of the things I have mentioned are real problems for people. It's not to... to, uh, denigrate or dismiss these problems. There are large, also large-scale calamities that one nation brings on another, such as the Russian-Ukrainian war. There are racial tensions in society, and there is gang violence. On occasion, God gets blamed for the crises in this world. Usually, I think our society leaves God out of it unless the church is in question or someone as a Christian presents themselves. Then our society will poke its finger at God. We hear pointed questions when there is a crisis like these. What kind of a God would punish people? Why does God not do something? If God did this, he's not good. Those are the kinds of things we hear in our society. Sometimes when people want to take aim and blame God, but anymore our society doesn't even think, doesn't even consider God for blame. We're quick to point the finger at others, which makes our lesson from Daniel stand out. Daniel chapter 9 is set in the calamity for Judah during the time that stretched from the Babylonian Empire to the Greek Empire. Verse 1 sets it at the time when the Medes acquired the Babylonian kingdom, which is called here the uh, Chaldean kingdom, but that's just referring to the one group of people who were the seers in Babylon and is referring to the Babylonian kingdom. It was the time of the exile. Daniel references it as the time the prophet Jeremiah mentions in his writing. For example, Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14 talks about the time of the exile, and part of what he says is this, Behold, or God says, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, 
and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And so when Daniel refers to the scripture and to, to Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah is one of those places that he could be referring. Babylon removed the Jews from their land, and most of the people were led away as captives to live in the land of Babylon. That was around 586 B.C. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was a ruin. The priesthood was in shambles. The people were destitute and captives. Babylon itself turned out to be marked by hubris and blasphemy and deification of itself. And we have stories of those three things in the first part of Daniel. To make matters worse, the final Babylonian rulers demanded that Israel acquiesce to them and buy into their idolatry. The Jewish youth were to be re-educated and turned into Babylonians. Remember that story with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? The Jews were to bow down to the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar set up. Everyone was, including the Jews. During the exile, during this period of the exile, after the Medes and Persians conquered the Babylonian empire, Daniel and the Jews were required to put away the law of God and offer only offer prayers and petitions to Darius. That's in chapter 6. So this was a time of crisis for the Jews. And later, during this time of crisis, the Greek king, Antiochus IV, aggressively tried to shut down the worship, the Jewish worship, in the new temple in Jerusalem and Hellenize the Jews. Hellenize means make them into Greeks, to believe their beliefs, to worship their gods, to live their kind of life. The whole time from the rule of Babylon to the rule of the Greeks was a calamity for the Jews. Unlike American society today, Daniel and the Jews knew that God was present, even during this calamity. It was not just a calamity with the Babylonians and the Greek pushing hard against the Jews. God was there as well. And so Daniel, in his prayer, refers to the covenant that God made with Israel. In verse 4, he addresses God, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. And also in verse 11, Daniel brings up the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. The law of Moses was a large part of the covenant that God made with Israel. God's covenant with Israel defined his relationship with his people. You might think of, of Exodus. We, we usually hear Genesis, Exodus. We hear those two writings that just kind of, they sort of stand out on their own for us. We really should think them as, as all part, they all fit together with the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are all meant to be taken together. So the first half of Exodus re, uh, talks about the mighty acts of God that created Israel as a nation. <clears throat> How did he do that? You probably know the stories where God um, sent the plagues. He sent Moses, his servant, to tell the Pharaoh to let his people go. Then he sent the plagues. Those are all God's mighty acts to deliver Israel. But what ends up happening is God forms Israel out of that. He creates Israel out of that as this new nation and leads them out into a land for them. God led Israel first when he brought them out of Egypt. He led them to Mount Sinai, and that's where God made his covenant with Israel. Deuteronomy is sometimes called the Book of the Covenant, and it begins with a history. The first four chapters are a history of what God did for Israel to set his set the the people his people apart. He led them, he delivered them, he disciplined them, he protected them, he provided for them. 
So at Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with Israel. And it, it can seem like it's, it's just this massive thing. It can be maybe a little bit overwhelming to us. But it's summed up very simply in Leviticus 26. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That's covenant language and that's what God did. God's covenant expressed his relationship to Israel. And in that relationship, God had been in the right for Israel. And this is important to hear. He had been in the right for Israel. And that's what Daniel says several times in his prayer. So God was in the right for Israel. For example, Micah chapter 6 verse 5, in that uh, verse, God reminds Israel of how he acted on behalf of the right for Israel. He said, O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. He had acted in the right for his people. In each of these cases, God had been a faithful rock and deliverer, deliverer according to his word, according to what he had promised to Israel. God had acted with authority for what is right. Isaiah says, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness or in right. When Israel sinned, God also acted for the right. See, it's, it's, it's pretty easy for us to say, Well, God acted in the right when he did things for us that helped us, when he delivered us or when he gave us things that we wanted. Um, Israel could say that very easily. But when Israel sinned, was God still acting in the right? Well, that's what the scripture says, and Daniel affirms that as much. So does Nehemiah. God also acted for the right when Israel sinned. Nehemiah prayed a prayer of confession, much like, in many ways, with some of the same themes as Daniel. And he recalled the incident of the golden calf which Israel built in the wilderness and worshipped instead of the Lord their God, which actually happened when they were at Mount Sinai. God acted in the right when he judged Israel for its sin because he was their God, not the golden calf, and he brought, he, he's the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. The golden calf did not do that. But Nehemiah also said that God is in the right because he's ready to forgive. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake Israel. God's covenant with Israel was for the good, and when Israel sinned, God was right to judge them. Daniel confirms this in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. God acted in the right in his covenant with Israel. Acting in the right is not doing, acting in the wrong is not doing anything about sin and wickedness and rebellion. That would be acting in the wrong. And there are plenty of rulers who do that, but God's not one of them. God was in a relationship with Israel in which he acted for the right. God is also in relationship with the whole world not just with Israel. In Reformed theology, we talk about God's covenant with creation. Our confession calls it the covenant of life. God created the world, and he doesn't leave it to live on its own. In fact, quite frankly, it can't live on its own. God bound himself to his creation for its good. 
But humanity sinned, and when humanity turned away from God and created its own gods and decided to live its own way, he judged it for its good. Only God is our creator and Lord. So in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul explains what God did with the sinful human race. He gave it up. God gave up sinful humanity to its foolish thinking, to its moral corruption, and to its fracturing of human life. And Paul uses that phrase three times in there, kind of sets off three paragraphs in Romans chapter 1. God gave up sinful humanity to its foolish thinking, to its moral corruption, and to its fractured human life. Giving up the sinful world to its sin does not mean that God gave up on the world. God's judgment of us was right because our sin is destructive and harmful. God reveals uh, reveals that to us with his judgment of our sin. Yet God was also in the right by acting to deliver us from our sin and our idolatry, which leads to all this sin that's being described in Romans 1. Sending his son, Jesus Christ, to save us was God acting in the right for us. Jesus defeats the power of sin, he rescues us, he turns us back to God, giving us new life with him. And in doing so, God acted in the right for the world. God has been faithful in his relationship with his creation, judging it and saving it. God is not in the wrong for the calamity and crises in this world. And Daniel says that over and over again in his prayer. The calamity that Israel was facing was because of its sin. Verse 11, again, he prays, All Israel transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Israel's calamity was Israel's fault, not God's fault. God was right in judging Israel's sin sin and sending the calamity upon the people because God acts for what is good in his creation. God was always right and also right for granting his mercy and pardon to Israel in order to restore them to what is good. Now, if God had done nothing, as so many people in this world think that God should do, he should just kind of stand back and and maybe be a cheerleader for us on the side, but that's about it. If God had done nothing, then he would be in the wrong. And it's the same for us. It wasn't just for Israel. It's the same for us. Those who would blame God for the real consequences of sin and the calamities that come in this world because of our rebellion against him are wrong. It's wrong to blame God for those things. God is not to blame. We ourselves are to blame. We must confess our sin, and that's what Daniel does in our reading this morning. In verses 3 through 19, or 4 through 19, are the prayer. And we can learn something about confessing our sin from Daniel's prayer. There's a pattern in it of going back and forth between God and Israel. For example, the prayer begins with Daniel's acknowledging who God is according to how he has revealed himself to Israel in verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. This is echoing language Um, of Israel's relationship with God and how God had revealed himself to Israel. And then it shifts to Israel. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So it it speaks to God and then it it speaks to Israel. Daniel uh, speaks of, 
of himself and Israel. And so as you listen to Daniel's prayer, it goes back and forth like this all the way through, at least to the, almost to the end. Confession of sin recognizes who God is according to his acts that are testified in Scripture. We don't make up who God is. We recognize who he is according to how he's revealed himself as testified in Scripture. We know God by how he acted for Israel and ultimately how he acted for us in Jesus Christ. When we confess our sin, it's important that we confess who God is and what he does. That should be a part of our confession of sin. Confession of sin also admits what we have done, not just who God is and what he's done, but also what we have done. And Daniel prays a corporate prayer of confession of sin. It's for the nation of Israel along with its rulers. So it is in verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. I've heard some confessions of sin that never actually confess anything. They're very wordy and very flowery and maybe even use a lot of scripture or biblical language. But they actually, if you listen to them, they never confessed anything. <laughs> the confessor says things like, if I have offended you, or it goes on and on about the wrongs done to me. And in Christian piety, there's a place for talking about wrongs done to us, but not in the confession of sin. It's a confession of sin. We're confessing our sin. If the conf- in the confession of sin, we must confess our failure to obey God, our rebellion against him, our wrongdoing. And there are different kinds of confession of sin in the church. We confess our sin corporately, like Daniel's prayer. We may also confess our individual sin, confession, individual confession. We could say something like, oh God, forgive me for being arrogant, for being uncharitable, for turning away from somebody in need, for hating someone, and so on and so on. Another thing we can learn from Daniel's prayer is that it asks for God's mercy and forgiveness. God acts in the right to forgive us, and it is right for us to ask for his forgiveness. And again, I've heard prayers of confession that bring up the wrongs committed, and they talk about God's character, his mercy, forgiveness, and grace, but they never actually say, forgive me, O God. Daniel's prayer ends with a fourfold plea for pardon and mercy. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, uh, let your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Verse 18, Oh, my God, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, because of your great mercy. Verse 19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. Be sure when you confess your sin to God, it does not turn into a venting for how bad your life is and all the trouble that you have. Again, in Christian piety, there's a place for that. In Scripture, it's a lament. Lots of the Psalms are doing that. They're lamenting all the things that have happened to the, to the psalmist or to Israel. But our prayer of confession is not to be a lament. It's to be, it needs to focus on asking God to forgive us of our sin. We make our confession and God answers us with Jesus Christ. 
there is a bit of a back and forth with our confession of sin. So we make our confession, and God answers us with Jesus Christ. Our gospel lesson today is Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew's gospel. Jesus sets out the Lord's Supper as the meal with him who died for us. As they were eating, the scripture says, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This meal is about God's greatest act of mercy to forgive us our sins. This meal right here that we're about to partake. Notice that Jesus, in in this text here in Matthew, Jesus refers to his blood as the blood of the covenant. It's in relationship to us that God sends his son to die for us and make us right with him. This is the new covenant he's referring to, and God makes it with us through Jesus Christ. To be in this relationship with God, we must confess our sin and believe that Jesus is the one who forgives our sin by dying on the cross and paying the debt we owe to God. Jesus' death and resurrection are what holds this relationship together, the relationship between us and God. It's like the knot that holds two pieces of rope together, two separate pieces of rope, but if there's a knot that's tied together that holds them together, that's what Jesus does with our relationship with God. It's the knot that holds them together. Without that knot, the two pieces of rope fall away. Jesus' death and resurrection will always be what holds our relationship with God together throughout all of eternity. It will always be Jesus Christ who holds our relationship with God together. For all eternity, we will be those who have received mercy and forgiveness. And God will always be the merciful God who forgives us our sin and makes us pure and right through Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God will always rest on Jesus Christ. To put it another way, the risen Jesus Christ will always have the wounds from the nails in his hands and the gash from the spear in his side where he gave his life for us on the cross. He will always have those in his body. And we will always have the healing salve of his blood upon us. God's act of mercy for us is right and good. We must confess our sin. Instead of blaming others for the crises in this world, instead of blaming God for the calamity that comes upon us, we must confess our sin. Every single person in this world, all of humanity, has done what is wrong and has sinned against God. That's Paul's point in Romans 1. In individual cases, there are those who are more in the wrong than others. That is true. There are the perpetrators of crime. There are people who exploit other people. And we must not blame ourselves for the particular acts of sin that others do. For example, the people who survived the school shooting in Tennessee do not need to feel guilty about the shooting. The shooter was responsible for what she did. In Daniel's case, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Antiochus IV are each culpable for the wrong they did. So what we learn from Daniel is not letting people off the hook. However, collectively, we all contribute our sin to the crises in the world. We all throw our sin to that big, ugly pot that is brewing and boiling in this world, even us Christians and the church. And therefore, we must confess our sin. Daniel's prayer of confession is for us. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, verse 5. 
Forgive us, O Lord, verse 19. Rather than blaming others for the crises in this world, the church must confess its sin. Russia has certainly done wrong in making war in Ukraine, but the church has its own sin to confess. The patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church has supported the war. He's a big ally of Putin, and he's even given theological purpose for it. Sexual predators are rampant in this world, and they should each be held accountable for what they've done. But the church has contributed to this sin. We all know of the Catholic priest scandal, and now the police have solved a cold case from 1975 that involved a young girl and a retired Reformed pastor from the CRC, the Dutch Reformed Church, and he confessed to abducting her and killing her. Racial hatred has been committed by different groups in our society, and those who hate others because of the race have created great harm, but the church has also contributed to racial hatred. And that's a big issue right now in the, in the PCA. Some of its churches are older. The PCA formed in the South, and some of its churches had you know, an existence before the PCA, and some of those churches uh, had a history of supporting segregation and slavery. The 2016 General Assembly of the PCA passed a resolution confessing its sin of racism. We can point the finger at those who push the LGBTQ ideology, and it has exploded and it has destructive consequences, but there are leaders in the church who outspokenly support it. Someone might say that these are particular churches, these are particular Christians who do these things, and so we might take solace in building a wall and saying we're inside the wall and they're outside of it. This is a way of denying that we're part of the church that must confess its sin. Listen to how Daniel prayed in his prayer in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law, O God, and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And in verse 6, Daniel says, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now, don't you think that Daniel, of all people, could say, Hey, I didn't do what they did. I'm not like them. I don't need to confess this, those sins, those national kinds of sins. And yet that's what he's doing. It's always we, we, we in Daniel chapter 9. In this prayer, we share in the wrongdoing of the church. Our sin is collective, which is why we must make a general prayer of confession for ourselves as part of the church. Finally, our confession of sin is a testimony to the world. Just like Daniel's confession of sin serves as a testimony to us that we share in the blame for the crises in the world, so the church's confession of its sin testifies to the world that we all are sinful and must be forgiven by God. So as we include that prayer of confession, the corporate prayer of confession, in our worship service, and as we always are, are willing to confess our sin in the church, we bear testimony to the world that, you know, it's not just you and them who have a problem. It's not just those out there who've done something to me or to us. We're all in this, and we've all done things to contribute to it. We confess our sin, and we say with Daniel, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, give heed and act. Do not delay for your own sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, most merciful.
We confess that we have sinned through our own fault and in common with others, in thought, word, and deed, and through what we have left undone. We ask to be forgiven. By the power of your Spirit, turn us from evil to good. Help us to forgive others. Grace to obey your commandments. And keep us in your ways of righteousness and love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith with the creed in the bulletin. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead, in the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 498 as we come to the table with our Lord Jesus, what a friend for sinners.
Hear the words of the Apostle who said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, this is my body. And he took also a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is a covenant meal with God. It is part of that new covenant that God has made with us in Jesus Christ. And in this covenant, we come surrendering our wills and being responsible to God alone. In other words, that He's our Lord and we submit to Him. No longer are we trying to just simply adjust ourselves and blend in with society and the world around us and adopt their thinking, their ideas, their way. Some of those ideas and ways are good, and there's nothing wrong with with using them, but not all of them. And it's not our job to just wholesale adapt ourselves to the world. We are now to be um, submitting to God through Jesus Christ and following Him. We are to be obedient to God's will above every other. And our pledge, as we come to this table, you might even say our vow, as we come to this table, is to live as faithful members of God's community of grace and peace. What is that community? Well, it's the church. We join hands with our fellow Christians in a common loyalty to God. So this is a covenant not just between me and God, but between us, me, us, together with God. All of this is laid upon us if we partake of the Lord's Supper. Here in this covenant meal, we belong to Jesus Christ. It is my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who, all who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members of the Christian church, or who belong to the Christian church, you are welcome to come to this, this table. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our salvation and the new life we receive from Him. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We give you thanks, Almighty God, because you have created us in your image. You've given us a world full of good things, but most of all, you've sent your beloved Son, who though he was equal with you, even though, being God, he became a man and lived among us as the servant of your salvation. He was obedient even to die on the cross so that we might pass from death to life. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And therefore, with all of heaven, we praise your great and glorious name, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. And now we pray that you would consecrate this bread and cup so that our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup may be for us a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we profess our faith with the church. We dare not take this meal without faith in Christ. And so we do profess our faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We thank you that even as there is one bread and one cup, so the church is one. And together with all your holy people, we have been united to Christ. We praise you, we glorify you forever, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom all good things come, and who has blessed us with the life-giving Spirit. To you is all the honor and glory along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and we offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen.
The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us bow our heads in prayer. 
Eternal Father, we thank you for nourishing us with these heavenly gifts. May our communion in Christ strengthen us in faith, build us in hope, and make us grow in love. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Final hymn is number 384. Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. I would turn your attention to a few items in the insert in the bulletin, beginning with um, our Christian education class, which will take place this morning uh, after our time of a brief time of fellowship. We will continue with our discussion of the book Gentle and Lowly. Our next Sunday meal is on August 6th here at the church. Uh, there's a note here about Hannah Wilson. You, you may have seen an email to this effect. Hannah is hosting a Chinese Education Freedom Fund meeting on August 24th at 8 p.m., I'm assuming? Yeah. Yes, 8 p.m. If you're interested in attending by Zoom, contact Hannah 
her email address is indicated in the bulletin. Um, I, I saw some more further description of this in the email. I can't recall it at the moment. So you, if, but check this out and find out more from Hannah about what they, they want to do here. And our women's prayer meeting, our next women's prayer meeting is on Thursday, August 10th at Mrs. Roberts' home, 9 a.m. And that is all I have at the moment. Linda? Yes, Linda is expressing appreciation for the eager, willing help that assembled here to clean up the grounds and uh, do some maintenance. Thank you. John. Um, Steve reminded me. I still forgot. (laughs) Oh, the diaconal? Sorry about that. If you brought uh, the diaconal offering, you can uh, pass it, I guess, to Alan or or Steve. so I yeah I just get into what I'm doing and I sure so old age it is old age (laughs) Um, I I also wanted to mention Friday Saturday I prayed we prayed for the prayer but that's the trial um, in our presbytery so please be in prayer Um, I think Michael's going I'm going over to represent our church Um, so be praying for that Barbara. Okay. So we're praying for a second opinion for her. Okay, praying for Christine, Jack's sister. sister. Oh, I'm sorry. Jack's sister, recently diagnosed with breast cancer, so pray for that. And uh, nephew, Louise, had surgery, is recovering but in some pain, so continue to pray for him. And with that, let us partake of some refreshment, and then we'll get back to our classes in uh, in a little while. Thank you.